Now, last week, uh, if you missed it, I would really, 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 like, really encourage you to go back and listen to that message because we launched into a new series of talks that we're calling Ideology. And what we are leaning into over these next three weeks is very simple. We want you to know how to build your belief system. We want you to know and understand the power of having good biblical theology. We want you to know how to build your life, to shape your worldview around what the Bible says and not around what culture says. And so last week we leaned into what is our theology? What is it? How do you establish it and how do you grow into it? Now that word, if you're new to church, very simply is just what is our understanding of God and our study of him? And so we started painting this beautiful picture that we have a Jesus-centered theology, that he is the plumb line, that everything that we do and all that we believe is shaped around and built next to the standard that he has set. And therefore, if an area of my life does not line up with him, it is I that must change. It is not him who changes. God does not negotiate righteousness, nor has he ever changed the standards that he set for us. But it is through Jesus and what he did for us on the cross that we're able to enter the throne room of grace with confidence and allow him to restore and rebuild what the enemy has stolen from us. Something that I said last week that I really want us to know is that if we don't know what we believe, Culture will tell you what you should believe. So we must know. One of our anchor passages in this series is 2 Timothy 4, starting in verse 1. The reason why we have chosen this passage to really stand on over these next few weeks is because Paul, the writer of the book of Timothy, is addressing Timothy in regards to the culture and the climate that he will be facing as a young leader. And what we find is that in 2 Timothy 4, Paul is also painting a very clear picture of the culture and the climate that we find ourselves in today. It says this, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from truth and turn aside to myths, but you... Keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and discharge all the duties of your ministry. My heart for you is that you would learn how to build your life, build your belief system on the firm foundation that is Jesus. In the middle of what can feel at times to be the very strong 
winds of culture. That we would not be those who turn away from truth and, 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 and turn aside to myths, but that we would find ourselves built on the firm foundation of our faith and therefore we will not be moved. Isaiah 28 verse 16 says, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic and I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the foundation that we structure what we believe on and how we live on. And what I want to begin to lean into today would be a part of our theology. And it is called our ecclesiology. And our ecclesiology is just a big church word for understanding what is the church and what is its purpose. What is the church and what is its purpose? And this matters because our understanding of God's design and plan for the church and its purpose will fuel how we see the church's role in society, but also in our personal lives. In Matthew 16, Jesus asked his disciples a very simple question. This question that Jesus posed to his disciples is the most important question that all of us will be asked in life. How we respond to the question that Jesus asked his disciples will determine not just how we experience life now, but it will also determine our fate after we die. And that question is this, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Matthew 16, Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, after Jesus asked this question, responded this way, and he said, you are the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. The significance of this moment in Matthew 16 cannot be understated. For one, the disciples were beginning to see who Jesus was, not just to them, but to the world. He was the promised one. He was the savior, the coming Messiah, the one who Isaiah and many prophets before had foretold about. And as they were beginning to see who Jesus really was, Jesus began to tell them what he was here to establish. He says, on this rock, I will build my church. And this church will be a place of victory, will be a place of refuge for all who believe in him. Now, it's important that we understand and zoom out for a minute and lean into the two primary reasons why Jesus left heaven and came to earth. The first is that 
Jesus is known as the last Adam. What that means is that Adam, the first human who was created by God, was made perfect in the image of God from the dust of the earth in Genesis 1. But Adam corrupted the perfection in him by disobeying God and doing the very thing that God commanded him not to do. And this desire to be his own God, to lead his own way, to see his own future, this single act of rebellion brought sin, not just to him, but into the world. And so Jesus came from heaven to earth to restore all that sin has broken in us and in the world around us. He was the last Adam, meaning that what Adam was unable to do, Jesus would do. And in doing that, he would take upon himself the punishment of our sin, which is death, so that in him we can have life. Romans 5 verse 12 says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, death through sin, in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as Adam did, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and gift that came by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the results of one man's sin? The judgment followed one sin that brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespass and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Are you still with me? Look, there's, we're, 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 we're attacking some important foundational things today. And, and, and I want you to understand that we're painting a picture that is strong enough for your problems. That we're painting a picture that, that is strong enough for what culture is trying to throw at you and convince you of. Because when we know who God is and his design for our lives and how he has given us the church to be a place of support, be a place of victory, be a place of refuge, then these things that we have sometimes done just culturally become significant because they were never designed to be ritual. They were always designed to be powerful. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Jesus' life, death, and resurrection restored our standing with God. And Jesus also came to restore the kingdom of God on the earth. And he does that through the people of God. Which brings us back to Matthew 16. 
where Peter looks at Jesus and answers this important life altering question, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds and says, you are the Messiah, the son, the savior. And Jesus looks at him and he says, on this rock, I will build my church. Jesus is saying that I'm going to establish a gathering of people that are gonna represent me and the ways of heaven here on earth. Earth, meaning that all of the divisions and issues that divide us in him, there can be unity in us. And all the power to see diseases healed and sicknesses wiped away, marriages restored, all of the power that is in heaven is available to us here on earth through the church. Listens to Ephesians 2, verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, one has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death for their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his Household, listen to verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So if Jesus came to restore us to the Father and to establish in us, through us, the church to represent him on the earth, we have to understand that it's not just good that we go to church, but understand the purpose of the church in our lives. If the church exists to establish the kingdom of heaven on earth, to be a dwelling for our God, this happens when the kingdom of heaven is established in our lives. The macro and the micro purpose of the church mirror one another because we are each temples of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, and we are being built together to become a temple, Ephesians 2, 21. God works in us and through us, verse individually and corporately. So that being said, let's define the church. Let's define it. Something I'm sure you've heard that the church is not, is that the church is not a building. How many of you have heard that? The church is not a building. How many of you know that after COVID, we're kind of like, I'm thankful we have a building, right? So, the, but the church is not a building. It's a body of believers that are living on mission, gathered together to glorify God and to build each other up. 
The church is a gathering of believers living on mission, gathered together to glory, glorify God and to build each other up. Therefore, although church buildings are important, the location of church is better defined by what is happening than where it is happening. Are you tracking with what I'm saying? Meaning the church can and does happen every time we gather together in his name. No matter if that's here, no matter if that's at an elementary school on a Sunday, in a living room on a Wednesday, or on a walk through your neighborhood on a Friday. Jesus said in Matthew 18, verse 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. When we come together with the goal of glorifying Jesus and building each other up, we are having church. Are you hearing what I'm saying? What that means is that then the power and the promise of the authority of who Jesus is and what he has given to the church does not simply just rest in these four walls here, but it rests in your life as we gather together with people to glorify Jesus and to build one another up. First Peter two, verse four says this, as you come to him, speaking of Jesus, the living stone rejected by humans, but choosing by God, the precious to him, you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, we have been made into the priesthood of the believer. We offer worship to God and we do our work on, we do, we do the work that God's given us by the power that he has bestowed upon us. And this is why we encourage you to actually do the work of the ministry. This, this is why we, we, we call you to bless your neighbor. This is why we encourage you to pray for the sick that are around you. This is why we encourage you to lead a life group, to host a life group, to lead a serve team, to disciple somebody, to impart what God has done in you into somebody who is around you. Because through Jesus, what was once reserved for some is now available to all. This is a big part of our ecclesiology around here, and it's commonly referred to as the priesthood of the believer, which means that all people have access to God through Christ, the true high priest, and thus we do not need a priest to be our mediator. Jesus is our mediator, meaning the gifting, calling, and anointing of heaven is not positional, but spiritual and available to all who believe. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Available to all who believe for the purpose of building up the church. This is why we call our life group leaders pastors. Because we, we believe that. We, we, don't, we don't just want them to practically lead the groups that they lead. We want them to pastor the groups that they lead because we believe that that gifting to shepherd is not relegated to a position of pastor, but is available to all believers. 
Are you still with me? You guys are like really quiet. Are you sure? Are you understanding what I'm saying? I know we don't like talk about this stuff a lot, but it's dadgum important. You need to know why you come to church. All right, you need to know it, that it's, it's not our idea, it's God's idea. If you think it's our idea, then when life gets crazy, you begin to change your ideas. But when you understand that church is God's idea and these things that he's given us are not just religious structures that have been developed throughout thousands of years. No, they were biblically found, foundational to how the church lived, grew, and impacted the cities that they lived in. All right. Ah. All right, now. We, we've been talking a lot about the function of the church, how it functions, like how it actually works out, that we, 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 we believe that all of you hold within you the gift of God to see church happen around you. I mean, we, we believe that wholeheartedly that the anointing, the, the power that all of heaven is available to you, and Jesus has given you grace to minister to those who are around you. And, and, and that, that's kind of like how things work around here. That's like the function of our ecclesiology, that we want you to do the work of the ministry. But I want to spend some time also talking about the form of the church because the form of the church at times can be debated and, and, and can be relegated to preference and denomination. So what does the church look like? For us here at Antioch, I want to start painting this picture of the form of the church by reading Acts 2, 42 through 47. If you've been around here a while, you know that this is a passage we often return to because this is a snapshot, a Polaroid picture of how the early church began to live, function, and impact the city where they found themselves. So we see this significant because this is right after Jesus went up, ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit fell upon the church, and then this is what it looked like in Acts 2. Acts 2, 42 through 47, this is what it says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all who had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, this snapshot of the church that we see here in Acts 2 really gives us a window into three areas where they gathered. One, they gathered in the temple. They gathered hundreds of people gathered in the temple. They also gathered in homes. They, they broke bread in homes. They, they ate together in homes. And then we also see the impact of that. And I would venture to say that they gathered in twos because you have to understand that Jesus' last words to them were, go and make disciples of all nations. So discipleship, meaning imparting into those around you what God has done in you, would have been in the DNA of how and who they see themselves and the purpose of the church. And so then we see that 
Thousands of people were added to their number daily. So also we get a very clear picture that if a healthy church is moving and living in God and ministering the Holy Spirit through them and displaying the glory of God, then the natural outcome of that is that people will come to know God. That the church's position in society is to advance and to push back that darkness and to see the kingdom of heaven established on the earth. And so they gathered in hundreds, they gathered in 20s, and they gathered in twos. They met in homes, they ate together, they loved one another. They were seeing people saved. I want you to understand that these things, meeting on Sundays, life groups on Mondays through Saturdays, discipleship meetings that happen in between that, discipleship training schools, these are not just good church ideas. These are biblical ideas. So we unapologetically call you to be a part of them because we don't want you to be involved in what we're doing. We want you to be involved in what God's doing here in Austin. Because this is God's design that we're being obedient to. These are not our ideas that we're trying to get you to buy into. Saying that, I know that church is not easy. Can we just keep it 100 here for about five minutes? Church is not easy. It's hard to get here sometimes. It's not easy to serve. It's not easy to to get here early and to stay late. It's not easy to host a life group. It's not easy to lead a life group. And Lord knows that church can also be super messy. It can be complicated. It can be hurtful. There's all kinds of brokenness that's happened. There's imperfections that go on. And people say things they shouldn't, do things they shouldn't. The impacts of that can be catastrophic on not just how we see church, but even how we see God. Church is not easy. But just because church is complex and at times messy does not mean that it's not necessary. Can I get an amen? Just because church is complex and not easy does not mean that it is not necessary because in the mystery and the sovereignty of God, God uses broken people coming together for his glory with all of its complexity and all of its mess to be the picture of heaven on earth. Listen to Ephesians 3 verse 10. His intent was that now through the church, His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we believe that when we come together corporately on Sunday in homes from Monday to Saturday with the goal of glorifying Jesus and building one another, one another up, and we do that to see people added to our number daily to be saved. Now that's form, that's structure that we see and experience. Now there's also another structure that God has given us for our good. Now this is not as exciting or fun and half of you are gonna say, why are we even talking about this? But the other half of you are like, praise God, he knows about this. And that's called church governance. It's the structure that God has given us underneath so that what we're building on top can be built as healthy as possible. 
And these things are given to us for our goods. Do you know, authority is not a limiter. Authority is an accelerator. And therefore, as a church, we submit, I submit to the authority of the elders that are over me. And I see that with, with a place of great joy because I need them. We're to lean into wise counsel, not think that we're wise. You hearing what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. So church governance is not like the exciting stuff, but can I tell you that if your church governance is strong, your church will be strong. I don't know of a church that is impacting the world that does not have a solid governance structure because it's biblical. It's not man's idea. It's God's idea. And so what do we see in the Bible for elders and overseers and pastors and, and deacons? We don't use that word, but, you know, hey, it's kind of old school. Maybe I'll bring it back. It says this, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, as a witness, this is 1 Peter 5, of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not just because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Elders watch over the flock. Their goal and purpose is both practical and spiritual. Here at Antioch, we believe that our elders are to carry us and cover us in prayer. They're to speak into what they see and they are to serve us with all that they have. What that looks like is that we are simply a senior pastor led, but a elder governed church meaning that me as the leader, the lead pastor here at Antioch, I'm driving forward our vision. I'm leaning into the heart of God for what he has for us. And then I take that and then I submit it to the elders, the overseers that are around us. And I have them speak into that because that feedback is for our corporate good. You hear what I'm saying? that we need their prayer, their input. We need them to be wise and to push back because we hear and prophesy in part, all of us. And so God has given us a structure so health can reign over individual passion and authority. And so we are a senior pastor-led, elder-governed, church. We also have pastors, and I think we have some of the best pastors in the church game. And their goal is to shepherd, to cover, to connect, to be there for the flock. And then we actually do have deacons, but we don't call them deacons. But you know what, deacons, you know where that comes from, that word comes from? It actually comes from a word that means in the dirt. 
what a deacon is, is a servant leader, a volunteer leader that is in the weeds of what's happening in the church. Our deacons are our life group leaders. They're, they're, they're volunteer pastors and leaders that are in the dirt. They're, they're down in all of the things that are going on in everybody's lives to see the kingdom of God get bigger in those lives. And what we see is that when we have elders and overseers and pastors and shepherds and deacons, that that structure allows us to stand confidently, not just in the will of God, but confidently in the vision that God has given us. Because the checks and balances, if you will, of what is going on in us individually has to be worked through us all corporately. And so our elders are given to us to strengthen us, to be an encouragement to us, to be a place of correction at times for us. They're there for our good. Our pastors are there to love us, to encourage us, to support us, to lead us, to, to see God get bigger in our lives. And then our deacons, our life group leaders are in the midst. They're gonna know more about what's going on in your life probably than a pastor will. And that's good. We want that because they're pastors too. Because we believe in the priesthood of the believer that there is not a relegation or an anointing and gifting positionally, but it is a spiritual gift. I, I want to close today by reading a passage of scripture that was written by Paul after he had just been taking a deep dive into the form of the church in 1 Timothy 3. And this is what he says in verse 14. Although I hope to come to see you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He, speaking of Jesus, appeared in flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, and was seen by angels, was preaching among the nations, and was believed on in the world, and was taken up into glory. We don't just need to know that we should go to church. We need to understand why we go to church, the purpose of God in the church, and then how that affects and shapes not just our society, but how we, interact with, value, and see the church that we belong to. Amen? It's God's idea. It's not our idea. And you will not have lasting theology without a foundation of an ecclesiology that puts you planted in the house of the Lord so that you can bear fruit in season and out. Amen? Let's stand to our feet. I want to pray for us. I want to pray a blessing over us today.
God, I'm asking that right now that we would be those who stand firm on the foundation of what we believe, that we would live in the glory of who you are, Jesus, that we would build our lives on the foundation of you, the cornerstone, the plumb line. And Lord, I pray that we would understand your desire for the church, that you came not just to restore us in relationship with God, but you came also to establish the kingdom of heaven in and through the people of God. And Lord, I pray that there would be such a hunger and a desire in us to be a church that understands its purpose and its reason for existing in this city. The reason why we personally believe in the church. God, I ask that our foundation would be strengthened, that we would rest knowing that you've given us a structure that is for our good, that it's for our protection, and it's designed for your glory to come down on us and to move through us. And Lord, we just, right now, just say, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.